you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them this morning with me to the book of John once again, uh, the Gospel of John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the back cart. You can follow along on your device. You can follow along on the screen. I would encourage you to keep it open as we kind of want to return to it. Uh, That's the downfall of relying solely on the screen is that when I draw your attention to things in the scriptures, I want you to be able to see it and verify it uh, with me. We are in week nine of uh, our study of the Gospel of John, Uh, this recollection of John the Apostle Uh, and perspective, uh, no doubt, uh, of course, guided by the Holy Spirit, but this recollection and perspective of Jesus' life and ministry. Last week, if you were with us, uh, we looked at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, uh, a proud Pharisee who was taught by Jesus the necessity of both the new birth uh, above all of his religiosity, as well as uh, the need to look upon the Son and be healed. Well, today our passage centers not around a personal encounter, uh, but around a controversy. And so with that brief introduction, uh, let me encourage you to stand if you are able uh, to um, hear God's Word. John chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse 22 and read down through the end of the chapter, verse 36. Listen as I read, this is God's Word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing, this is John the Baptist, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. But I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Before we dive into our passage this morning, I'd like to address and explain a couple phrases 
that just stood out to me as I first read this passage. Maybe they stood out to you as you heard this passage read to you. There are two phrases about the time and the place, the context of where we are. You see, John writes a curious parenthetical phrase in verse 24. For John, the baptizer, had not yet been put in prison. Don't you wonder why that is there? Why did John feel like he needed to say that? Well, the reason he puts that there is because the synoptic gospels, that's what we call the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they place the beginning of Jesus' ministry after John's arrest. And John knows this. And so when he writes his account, he is making this point that what he's recording here is before all of that. In other words, these are details that occur in the time frame between the temptation of Jesus, which John doesn't record, and John's arrest, which is mentioned here. So it's an interesting little, John's explaining to his original hearers in particular how his gospel account differs and relates in time to the gospel accounts of the other disciples. But there's one more interesting phrase that I'd like to explain before we jump in. It's the fact that John was baptizing at a place because water was plentiful there. It's kind of an odd thing to say. He's baptizing because, because there was water there. But what, what John, the author, John, is saying, and the reason he's saying this, is because Anon, the place uh, that is listed here, that is a Semitic word that transliterated means springs or the place of many springs. So John is just making the point as he places John the baptizer's ministry in, in, in time and place, he's just making the statement that he went to a convenient place. <laughs> in an arid land where water wasn't around every corner, he went to the place of many springs in order that he might continue this ministry in the baptism of repentance. Now that brings us to our passage, and that brings us to the controversy. That brings us to the discussion that sparks off this account. Jesus and his forerunner John the Baptist are shaking up the Jewish world, right? They're breaking old norms, they're opening up new understandings, and so we learn right away in our text that a discussion has arisen. We don't know the details of this discussion, but we know that it revolves around Jewish purification rites. And what is that? Well, for years, for generations upon generations, the Jews had followed certain ritual cleansings. And now what John the Baptist is doing is very different than what they're used to in their religion. And whatever discussion was had somehow related to the fact that Jesus was doing a very similar thing himself. Although if you sneak ahead to Chapter 4, verse 2, you realize that Jesus actually isn't baptizing. His disciples are the ones who are doing the baptizing. And it is this debate 
that turns into an opportunity. We don't need to know the details. John doesn't tell us the details. But it's this debate that turns into an opportunity for John the Apostle to proclaim two things. Two things that are really about exalting one person. And the way I've chosen to organize this passage this morning is I'm going to flip it. So we're going to look at the latter verses first. Verses 31 through 36, if you have your Bibles open. Because they provide, I believe, the foundation for verses 27 through 30. So we're going to start with verse 31. And the first of two truths. Jesus is above all. Jesus is above all. I've taken that phrase from verse 31. From the mouth of John the Baptist. He says it twice. Jesus is above all. We might say more simply, Jesus is always first. It's a simple truth that John has been hammering home in his gospel. He'll continue to hammer this home as he presents Jesus to his audience and to us. But I want you to see what John has been doing so far in this gospel. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus was the new and better wine. Surpassing those waters, those jars of water which were used for purification. In John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, Jesus was presented as the new temple, surpassing the old temple, the old place of worship. One day, no place will be needed. And then in verses 1 through 21 of chapter 3, Jesus was presented as the better healer. Better than that serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness to heal from God's judgment, Jesus Himself will be lifted up to heal for all who look to Him and believe. Well, now today, John the Apostle is doing the very same thing. And he's presenting that Jesus has the superior ministry. Because as he's already begun to show us, as he already has sought to show us, Jesus himself is superior. Jesus is above all. Now I know that I don't need to belabor this point with this audience. But I want to lay the foundation because that's what the text says before we begin to think about how it applies to us and how it ought to change us and shift our thinking in our lives, I want us to briefly think about Jesus' exaltation in three superiorities from our text. The first one is Jesus is above all in origin. In origin. Look at verse 31. Recalling the language of, of the new birth We are told by John the Baptist that Jesus came from a spiritual place. He came from above. He came from a a different dimension, we might say, outside of time and space. This man, though he stands there in flesh and blood, John the Baptist says, he is no mere man. And to contrast this, John basically says, 
Listen, guys, I am earthly. I am flesh and bone. I am born from dust. I am finite. I am limited. And I even talk like I'm limited. But not this Jesus. He speaks about what he has witnessed firsthand as he has sat in the council of God. In other words, he speaks for God because he is God. The God who gives His Spirit the seal, the guarantee of truth. Jesus is above all. But then John also says in verse 35, he also brings to mind Jesus is above all in authority. Right? We learn from John that in this act of, of intra-Trinitarian love, the Father has given to the Son all authority. All things are in His hands. The one through whom the world was created. The Word now upholds the world by the Word of His power. In Him, Paul says in Colossians 1, all things hold together. Jesus is above all in origin. Jesus is above all in authority. How comforting is this truth? All things are in His hands. That means there is no chaos in our world. Only order. Sure, there is mystery, but there is no need to fear. And as we'll look at in just a moment, there is no room for pride. Jesus is above all in authority. And then lastly, Jesus is above all in the fact that He is the only way to the Father. Verse 36, Jesus will proclaim later in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, the stakes couldn't be any higher than they are. Believe and live or refuse and God's wrath remains upon you. Just like last week, look to the Son and be healed or don't look at the Son and remain in judgment. Jesus is the only way, John says. Now that word wrath, is, it's not a very popular word in our world, and I admit it's a heavy one. But let me remind you of something about wrath, and that's through a, a quote I want you to read from one commentator. He says, God's wrath is not some impersonal principle of retribution, but the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly fallen into rebellion, and finds few who want anything to do with him. I think that's important for us to view is that wrath is not some, as he says, impersonal principle. It's the reality that we are at odds with our Creator by our own rebellion, by our own sin, and that we must have Jesus to restore us. The One who is from heaven. The One who has been given all authority. The One who is the only way. And so for most of you, if not all of you, I know that you have acknowledged this. The challenge for all of us, including myself, is to let these realities shape us and our lives. And that brings us to the second truth that I'd like to spend most of our time on, the rest of our time on. 
as we jump to the first part of our passage, that first paragraph starting in verse 27. And the truth is this. Not only is Jesus above all, but Jesus must be above all. Jesus must be above all. See, here we move from what is to what needs to be in our lives. If Jesus is first, then I must be second. That's what John is saying here. We've talked about this quite a bit. You and I live in a world of of comparison. You and I live in a world of competition. Whether you're on social media or not, you likely know about the concept of, of likes. Thumbs up, right? Ding! Facebook has them. Instagram has them. YouTube has them. If you like something you see, as my kids say, smash the like. Researchers at UCLA did a study recently, and they found that when teenagers see large numbers of likes on their pictures, on their posts, that their brains react in the same way that they would when they eat chocolate or when they're given money. It's human nature. We love likes. We crave attention and adoration. We care what people think way too much at times. We want at least our 15 minutes of fame. And the question for us as Christians, those who acknowledge that first point, that Jesus is above all in origin and in authority and in the way, the truth, and the life, The question for us is, do we worry more about what people think of us than what they think of Jesus? Do we want Jesus to be known or do we want to be known? You see, it was no different back then. It sure seems as if John's disciples, John the baptizer's disciples in verse 26, are experiencing some sort of envy, right? John, they're all going to him. You've got competition. You're baptizing. You were the first one on the scene. Now he's doing it, but everyone's walking by you and they're going to him. You're losing. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 36, John had announced to some of his disciples, or at least in their presence, he had said when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God. And immediately two of his disciples, they left his side, John the baptizer, and they immediately followed Jesus, right? They, they were ready. John the baptizer had trained them well. When they heard that the Lamb of God was here, they needed to switch their allegiances, But it sure seems like the guys here had lost their focus. And so John uses this as an opportunity, this question about baptism, this comparison between Jesus' ministry and, and John's ministry. John, the baptizer, uses this as an opportunity to teach about our identity, to push back against our pride and our self promotion. And it all centers around this one verse, one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. John 3.30, he must 
increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a great phrase. What a great life verse. What a great mantra for us as Christians to remind ourselves of every day. John throws down the gauntlet with this statement of humility and identity, not only for himself, but for all who love and follow Jesus. And he uses the word must. Must. Bringing to mind two recent phrases in the Gospel. Chapter 3, verse 7, you must be born again. Chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And now as a result of those things, He must increase and I must decrease. It's a necessity. And not only that, but it's, it's what we were made for. It's what will ultimately bring us satisfaction and joy. So how do we do it? How do we begin to live this out? I think it begins with understanding who you are in relationship to the One who is above all. And that's why we started with Jesus. The person and work of Jesus and who He is in His majesty, in His authority. But in this opening section, which obviously precedes those latter remarks that we've already worked through, John gives us two things to focus on as we strive to make Jesus above all in our lives. And the first is found in verse 27. Do you see it there? God's sovereignty. That's how we can sum up verse 27. God's sovereignty. Here's the bottom line, John says. As his followers draw attention to comparisons between between him and Jesus, he says, not only am I not Jesus, I've already told you that, I'm not the one who is from above, but God gives different gifts, different abilities to different people for different purposes. And so essentially John says, I can't be upset at this role that God has given me. This is what God gave me. And He does as He pleases. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4-7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? If Jesus desires that He be glorified in this, whatever it is, whatever lot in life that may be, then so be it. Because He is above all. He is worthy. He is sovereign, John is saying. Let's just stop right there because this this acknowledgement of God's sovereignty applies to so much that might be churning in our hearts. Hearts that are anxious. Hearts that are discontent. Hearts that are looking at other people's successes, other places in life. 
Hearts that are looking about how they're being viewed. Wow, look at him, look at her. I wish blank. And we could go on and on. But trusting in what John the Baptist says and in his attitude, he must increase, I must decrease. It frees us from from comparisons. It frees us from the if-only game. And it disciplines us to learn, as the Apostle did, to learn contentment in all things. It pushes us to gratitude. It pushes us to humility that weeds out pride. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's painless. But I'm saying it's good. D.A. Carson, the theologian and commentator, he fleshes out what is at the heart of struggling to be second. He says this, deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in this instance betray not only unbelief and unfaithfulness, but the worst form of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. You're not God. I'm not God. You don't know what's best. I don't know what's best. Nor does He owe you anything. Nor is He withholding from you. Jesus must be above all. John reminds us that God's sovereignty helps us get there and meditating on that and digesting that. But then He also tells us a second thing. In verses 28 and 29, Tapping into the wedding scene of of chapter 2 and the Old Testament imagery of Israel as the bride. We see that in places like the book of Hosea, in the book of Isaiah. John reminds his followers of his identity. Identity. I'm not the bridegroom, I'm a friend. Or as we might say in John's unique case, translating into our modern world, he's. He's the best man of sorts for the bridegroom. And what are the emotions of that role? The role of a best man? The emotions are the joy at seeing the bridegroom get his bride. Of making sure everything aligns and is together for this union. The best man, the friend of the groom, doesn't work for the bride's attention. No, he strives to make sure that the attention belongs where it belongs. It's not about us. It's about Him. And it doesn't mean that you're insignificant. It doesn't mean that God is not for you. No, you are an honored part you see we're all tempted to live in an identity of our own making we're all tempted to live in a false identity rather than our true identity we're tempted to define ourselves by things other than jesus if you're living in a false identity you will crave praise You want to exalt yourself, but if you're living in your true identity, if you are hidden in Christ, then you will long to exalt Jesus. I am second. You are second. Jesus must be above all. The Gospel invites us to lose ourselves in order that we might find who we really are. 
And so we, we say things like the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We confess with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Made to be second, we live in this identity no matter the limitations, no matter the circumstances, delighting that we exist for something, for someone bigger than ourselves. We live for His glory, not for our own. And so that points us and and prods us to be boasters, not in us, but in the Lord. David in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Galatians 6, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so we strive to live for the kingdom of God, not for a kingdom of our own making. As we close, I want to read a semi-lengthy quote from Pastor author Paul Tripp, who always has a, he has a gift of putting gospel truths in plain terms. And he says this, he says, Big kingdom living is always propelled by remembering the Lord. Shockingly, He is the one thing that we as sinners all tend to forget. This isn't some mystical, spiritual exercise for the super-spiritual. It is street-level worship. It is loving God more than the projects on my smartphone. It is caring more about His glory than about my schedule. It It is caring more that His grace is spread and His fame is known more than I care about the next sale, the next promotion, an immaculate house, or a fun lunch with my friends. And so ask yourself, when you start your day, what fills the eyes of your heart? What unseen thing draws and motivates you? Where do your priorities need to realign for His glory and for your good? Friends, He must be above all. Why? Because He is above all. Because He is above all. May God lead us and give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for John the baptizer and for this testimony, this clear understanding of his mission, of his reason for existing, of the end of his popularity, the end of people listening to his voice with awe and with wonder, and the opportunity to fade into the shadows that Jesus Christ might be exalted. Oh, Father, I believe that those of us who truly know and love the Lord Jesus, we want to live lives like this. 
but we don't know how. Or we're blind to those areas where we promote ourselves and promote our own agendas and schedules to the detriment of what you are doing and what would exalt the Lord Jesus. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take this encouragement, this admonishment, the seven wonderful words, He must increase, but I must decrease. And that you would write them not only on our hearts and in our minds, but that you would write them in our lives. That you would show us those areas where we're too preoccupied. That you would give us that inner renewal of waking up each day thankful for the breath, for the life, for the ability to live another 24 hours, not for our own pleasure alone, but for the glory of Your name, whatever that may look like. Oh Father, I pray as the prophet prayed, that Your Word would not return to You void, but would accomplish all You intend for it to accomplish. For the glory of Your name, and for our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.